Since the election, we've created nearly six million new jobs, including more than half a million manufacturing jobs and nearly 700,000 new construction jobs. Numbers that if I would have said this during the campaign, those people back there, I call them the fakers, fake news media. The fakers would have said he exaggerated, he exaggerated. They are a bunch of fakers, there's no question about it. But you know, in six years, they're all going to be out of business, folks. Well, we are in a constitutional crisis because of the administration's contempt for law, their refusal to obey the law, whether it's their refusal to hand over the president's tax returns to the chairman of Ways and Means when the law says they must do that. You like records. This must be a record of attorney general being proposed for contempt within 100 days of taking office. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. My guest today is Max Boot, whom I've never spoken to, and I'll be honest, he kinda scares me. And okay, it's not not his name. I mean, Max Boot. Thanos definitely has a cousin named Max Boot. But he's the good cousin. That's right. Max turns out to be, yeah, a measured former Republican with a stern voice, but he has a flexible mind and he's probably been the person most ideologically changed during Trump's presidency, period. The hallmark of a good mind would seem to be the willingness to change it. And because of that, I'm very happy to learn from Max Boot. Max Boot, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me on. When I was at Talk Magazine, Tina Brown wanted you to write because of your obvious merits, but also because she loved your name. Everyone loves your name. <laughs> well, I, I can't accept any, any credit for my name, obviously, but I have to acknowledge that I named my son William Boot in, in tribute to the hero of uh, Scoop. Oh, yes, exactly. Tell listeners what Scoop is. I don't know if people read that anymore. Do they? Well, they should. It's one of the great journalism novels ever written by written by Evelyn Waugh, one of the great comic novelists or one of the great novelists, period, uh, written in the 1930s, a satire about an, Eng- an English newspaper that he called The Daily Beast, which was the inspiration for Tina Brown to start her own publication <laughs> called The Daily Beast. And the hero of, of Scoop was this hapless gardening columnist named William Boot, who was mistaken for a foreign correspondent and sent to cover the war in Abyssinia, i.e. Ethiopia. (laughs) And lots of us, I think, start out, you're not in this camp, but lots of us start out doing lifestyle-y stuff and culture because there's much more room for that and then turn to more serious journalism that we're probably initially at least unqualified for. So this is for William Boot, both William Boots today. Okay, I have been wanting to talk to you for such a long time I like your laconic style. I like how you write with such precision. And I also know that you have had a big year, ideologically, spiritually. This big change of yours away from the Republican Party, but also certain conservative principles. Tell us about that. Well, it's not just this year. I mean, this is a process that's been going on almost four years now, in fact, since 2015, when Trump announced his campaign for the presidency by, you know, bashing Mexicans as rapists and murderers, which I was viscerally and immediately shocked by. and couldn't believe that somebody could run for president like that. And then a few weeks later, you know, he denounced John McCain, somebody I revered, saying that he wasn't a war hero because he was captured. And of course, 
you know, the, uh, the outrage just kept on coming. A few months later, he said that he was calling for a total and complete shutdown of all Muslims entering the United States. And so, you know, he was a, a daily source of outrage and offense to me, and I never imagined that he would win a single vote in the Republican primaries, much less win the nomination, much less win the presidency. And when he actually did, the first, very first thing I did the day after the 2016 election was to re-register after a lifetime spent as a Republican. And in 2016 was the first time I had voted for a Democrat in casting a ballot for Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, after having served as a foreign policy advisor to three Republican presidential campaigns, I, I immediately left the party as soon as Donald Trump won the presidency and became an independent. And, you know, uh, everything that Trump has done since then has only convinced me that I was right, that he was singularly unqualified uh, by intellect, by temperament, uh, by morality uh, for the presidency. And, and you know, his, his presidency is a, is a daily source of outrage to me. And the thing that's most outrageous to me is that so many conservatives and Republicans, figure, you know, find ways to rationalize and justify the Trump presidency such that he has the support of about 90 percent of Republicans right now, which you know, suggests to me this is not a party I could possibly be part of. Uh, and then in the process of trying to figure out what the heck happened, you know, I wrote this book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right, and in which I grapple with to what extent is Trump uh, a unique uh, figure in American politics, and to what extent is he actually an outgrowth of previous trends within the Republican Party. And, and my conclusion is that it's some of both, that, you know, the way that Trump misbehaves in, in many ways is unique. There's certainly never been another president like him, mercifully, whether in the Democratic or Republican Party or any other. But he also draws on trends that you can see uh, in the Republican Party stretching back decades. You know, the Southern strategy, appeal to racism, appeal to rationality and conspiracy mongering with, for example, denying global warming, mm -hmm. the poisonous uh, partisanship that Newt Gingrich really made the dominant mode of the party in the 1990s. Uh, so there are elements of, of Republican uh, dogma and practice that, that, that Trump draws upon, which is part of the reason why he's so popular with the Republican Party. And, and these are elements of, of the Republican Party that I really you know, was blind to when I was a Republican. I was very much in, in denial. I was in my ideological bunker, and I, I refused to grapple with what was really happening to the Republican Party, which in hindsight was was very disturbing. Talk a little bit about that denial, because it's amazing to me that you are willing to leave yourself vulnerable to the criticism that this is too little too late. I'm not sure that there's, well, this is consistent with your question. Is Trump, as Joe Biden calls him, an aberration? Is he an anomaly? Or is this something everyone should have known all along, that at the first sign of or the hints of Lee Atwater and the Southern strategy or Newt Gingrich that you all should have known? Yeah, I mean, I wish I had been more critical of the Republican Party in the past. But I was, as I said, I was in the ideological bunker. And, you know, confirmation bias is a powerful drug. And, and I would add it, but it's not only on the right. It's also on the left. Of People course. on the left are also very much caught up in their ideology and, and will not question it critically, but I certainly, you know, failed to do that with the Republican Party. And I remember, you know, for example, when uh, liberals would attack the Republican Party for being racist or pandering to racists, and I would think that was a horrible slur because, you know, I would say, hey, I'm not a racist. My friends aren't racist. What are you talking about? And, you know, 
with with Donald Trump's campaign, it became undeniable because what was once a dog whistle became a wolf whistle, and you know his appeal to to racism became so loud and unmistakable that I I couldn't deny it anymore. And you can easily say, well, hey, you know, why didn't you acknowledge this years ago? And that's a fair criticism. I mean, I I, I should have. The only thing I can say in my self defense is that you know most Republicans are still in denial. So you know uh, you know at least a few of us are willing to admit the the dire reality. Following Dahlia Lithwick, she and I are great fans of Albert O. Hirschman. He has this great book about the arguments for capitalism before its triumph, how in the 16th century, greed, which had been a sin, suddenly became the sort of dominant principle of geopolitics and also not a bad one. And one of the things he talks about, and I want to test this out on you, is that in general, the 16th century, 17th century argument, better that a man tyrannize over his wallet than over his fellows. And so trade and money becomes a proxy that sort of subdues our worst impulses. But there are these very rare cases, and I think Orwell also was alert to this as a strange aberration from that calculus, that symbolic power, like holding political office, the symbolic power of the law superseded a kind of violence and thuggery. But he said there is this rare example where these mobster figures who both want to tyrannize over their fellows and their bank book and tyrannizing over their fellows, we sort of think of as racism, the passions, irrational passions. But how Trump is both so corrupt and greedy and also so passionate or racist is hard to fathom. It's not quite just authoritarianism. His bigotry seems... I don't know. You'd think it was self-defeating. And it seems quite native to him, not a strategy, you know, like Lee Atwater. Yeah, I think he contains multitudes, and they're all pretty offensive and repulsive, but he has, you know, competing impulses. And certainly his pursuit of money uh, has been the dominant passion of his life, which makes it kind of laughable that, you know, evangelicals claim that he is, you know, the mo- the greatest Christian president of all time because— uh, you know, he he basically looks at the Ten Commandments as, uh, you know, not as as prohibitions, but as, as his personal to do list. Uh, <laughs> but but he you know he is clearly uh, somebody who has been animated by by lust for money, mm-hmm. uh, lust for uh, for women, mm-hmm. uh, lust for power. Uh, but he you know he also has these these base prejudices, and I wouldn't elevate them to the level of of uh, ideology or or doctrine but mm-hmm. you know he 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 basically is i mean i think the way to understand donald trump is that this is basically you know archie bunker in in the white house because mm-hmm. he grew up in queens just like archie bunker did <laughs> and yep. he is very much a product of that uh, 1950s 1960s era in in blue collar uh, uh queens uh, where he lived even though his father was quite wealthy uh, and he kind of inherited all those uh, prejudices, and that's you know animated him from day one. I mean, remember back in the 1970s, the Justice Department was suing uh, Trump and his father for discriminating against African Americans and their apartment rentals. And so, you know, that is that is who he is. He has been. I mean, he is inconsistent about a lot of things, but he is fairly consistent in his racism. He's also been pretty consistent in his contempt for free trade and for U.S. allies. Those are other animating ideas that he's had going back. We, we have a record of those going back to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And he's also been, you know, convinced, at, at least since the 80s, probably before, 
that America was no longer great. I mean, he was actually saying this in the 80s and 90s when yes. America was at the apex of its power. He was claiming that, you know, we were being robbed by, you know, the wily Japanese, and now it's the wily Chinese who are supposedly uh, robbing us. But, I mean, he's made clear when he's been asked occasionally, you know, when was America actually great? What is the era that you want to revive? And he's, uh, you know, he's one of the answers he's offered is the 1950s, which mm -hmm. you can see why, you know, kind of a, a bigoted, a swaggering white guy from Queens would think that the 50s was a pretty great era. Obviously, if you're a woman, if you're a minority, not such a great era. But that is, you know, Trump has no empathy for anybody, uh, you yeah. know. And, and so, you know, that's, that's his worldview. By bringing up the mafia and Orwell, I just want to add this sort of goes to you have these competing views that you've sort of brilliantly harmonized that Trump might be an anomaly instead of an outgrowth of Republican thinking. On the anomaly side, Orwell does say that these mobster figures, the upside of those who don't balance their passions with their interests, don't last very long. They burn out because that kind of racism and bile, in most cases, look at Russian mobsters and oligarchs, they just don't live very long. <laughs> because they live in the fray. And so I feel like that's somewhat promising. But I want to ask one thing about something you mentioned, evangelical support. So I don't know if, did you see this BuzzFeed News profile of someone named Katie McHugh? She's far-right provocateur. Yeah, I saw, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, what interested me about her is that she blew past Christian right-wing thinking and ultimately sort of got involved with this kind of pagan cult that's entirely about the passions or that, it, like you said, takes the seven deadly sins as a to-do list and considers that Aryan ideal of manliness. And I think they perform feats of strength and abuse and subjugate women and go to the woods. And it seems like that ideal is the one that, for whatever reason, evangelicals got interested in, no longer sort of subduing whatever racism was implicit in their idea of, of, of Christianity, but giving license to it. I mean, I just was astonished in that profile. I don't know, maybe you have something to say about it, about this kind of resurgence of a pagan idea that sometimes you see Jerry Falwell paying homage to. I think David Frum is interested in how Trump is considered a Cyrus figure that paved the way for the exodus of the Jews. So you have to love him because even though he's not a Christian, he liberates the Christians. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about this? I mean, I don't think his supporters would admit or would say that he's not a Christian. I mean, I think they think that he is, you know, a great Christian, that he is a, you know, a Christ-like figure who will redeem America you know, say, you know, usher in their, their, their paradise because they view all these things, I think, in almost exclusively political terms. And, I mean, it's just a complete disconnect uh, between the kind of personal behavior and character that, uh, that these Christians claim to, to believe in and what they're willing to accept from Donald Trump that they would never accept from, you know, somebody like Bill Clinton. I mean, it's just... Uh, you know, the, the hypocrisy is off the charts, and I think it's really, uh, it's, you know, it's discrediting uh, the evangelical movement that they are so nakedly partisan and political and willing to embrace Donald Trump as one of their own, because, you know, if and when Donald Trump ever has his downfall, and, and sadly that has not yet occurred, I think it will also be a downfall for a lot of his most fervent supporters, many of whom are on the uh, certainly uh, uh, white evangelicals. Yeah.
So I haven't heard you on the Mueller report. What did you make of it? What was your experience when it dropped and pouring over, as I assume you did those 448 pages? Yeah, I mean, I, I read it right away, which places me, I guess, in a minority of about 3% of the U.S. population, hmm. according to a recent poll. I mean, it's, I think it's, you know, shocking uh, criminality and shocking misbehavior by the president of the United States. I mean, the the Trump spin of, of no obstruction, no collusion is is absurd. Uh, in fact, although Mueller did not use collusion as his uh, interpretive mechanism for what Trump did with Russia, clearly there was a lot of collusion. Uh, and clearly Trump and his campaign were very eager to accept Russian help, even though you know, Mueller could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a criminal conspiracy involved. Pretty clear that uh, Trump was placing his self-interest above the interest of the country. That's a basic failure of, of patriotism, that mm. he was encouraging a Russian attack on America in the expectation that it would benefit him politically. And I think that's you know a lot of the reason why uh, he's not doing anything to crack down on, on future Russian attacks on America, because he probably expects it will help him next year as well. So that, to me, uh, is not a, necessarily a criminal offense, but it's certainly an impeachable offense. Mm -hmm. But Mueller obviously did find lots of criminal offenses. And, you know, if you read the, the second part of the report where he lists 10 episodes of possible obstruction in at least six of those cases, Mueller finds that Trump's conduct meets all of the tests for obstruction of justice under the law, which is why you just had, you know, more than 500 federal prosecutors sign a petition saying that if Trump uh, were a private citizen, he would have been indicted by now. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is just, uh, I'm shocked by what's, what's happened on multiple levels, not not just by the f how flagrantly Trump is, is breaking the law and committing criminal offenses as well as high crimes and misdemeanors, but what, what really shocks me as a former Republican is how few Republicans seem to care about any of this. And you know, among elected Republicans in Washington, there is only one Republican out of all the Republicans in Washington. There's only one Republican who expressed any outrage about what occurred. And that was Mitt Romney, who said that he was sickened by Trump's conduct. But even Mitt Romney uh, uh, minimized what had actually happened by pretending uh, that Mueller uh, had somehow cleared Trump of, of criminal offenses, which was not at all the case. But all the other Republicans are basically giving him a pass. They, they really don't care. They've basically, you know, their only source of morality or in lieu of morality, they have opinion polls, which show that Trump has the support of 90 percent of Republicans. And so mm -hmm. there are no honest Republicans left in Washington who are willing to challenge Trump to stand up for the rule of law, to stand up for what's right. I mean, this is a shocking uh, sellout uh, by the Republican Party. It's really become this authoritarian party whose only governing uh, creed is do whatever Donald Trump wants and protect mm -hmm. Donald Trump at all costs. I mean, this is not the Republican Party I joined mm -hmm. in the 1980s. It's not one that I can possibly be part of. And I just wonder about what the hell are all these people thinking who still think that they want to be part of this party? Just this morning, I was thinking about the unnamed senior administration officials who wrote that op-ed in the New York Times, it seems like a million years ago, maybe, what, eight months ago, saying that they had sort of a quiet detente and were trying to keep the president from his worst impulses. I was astounded that the president seemed to move on from that very quickly. That would seem to be very unnerving kind of deep state, actual, you know, avowed deep state stuff. But in any case... They seem to be all gone. Maybe John Kelly took them with him or Mattis or who knows who. But 
without them, what do you think the conversation around him looks like in unguarded moments that say Ben Sass and Romney and even, you know, the ones that we always used to hear about that they would say, this is a shit show, but I still have to stand with the president. I think Jeff Flake said, unless you're four square with the president, you can't run. I mean, you've been around Washington and I have not. What are those conversations like? You know, I don't think that there's any doubt that uh, that a lot of Republicans in in this town, as people like to call Washington, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of Republicans think that but you basically agree with the with the general critique of Donald Trump that he is unqualified, he is mentally unbalanced, he is unfit to be president. In private, a lot of members of Republican members of Congress will admit that. Uh, certainly, I'm sure that a lot of uh, office holders within the Trump administration believe that, even though they're obviously uh, reluctant to say so. Uh, but, you know, this this kind of reminds me of, of something that Tom Friedman once said about the Middle East, where he said, it doesn't matter what people are saying in private. The only thing that matters mm-hmm. is what they're willing to say in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true in, in Washington as well. And it doesn't really matter what all these Republicans are saying in private, where they admit how awful and, and how dangerous Donald Trump is mm-hmm. in, in public. They are good soldiers of Donald Trump because they are afraid that if they're not, they're going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their positions, uh, they're going to be ostracized and vilified by their own party, which is the fate that has befallen a few people like Jeff Flake and Mark Sanford who have dared to occasionally speak out against Trump, and, and they don't want to have that happen to them. And so they uh, you know, are, are really cowards. They're not standing up to Trump because they think that he is too powerful, too scary, too much of a bully. And uh, you know, they're putting their self-interest above the interest of the republic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's shocking to me that we expect our soldiers to risk their lives to defend the country. And these Republican cowards will not even risk their jobs. Mm-hmm. I think that's something like what James Mattis said in his resignation letter. I mean, he didn't single out people in the legislature, but that this is a national security disaster and very dangerous and not being able to stand up for what he calls inspiration at home. The American ideals has made it difficult for the military to operate. And that's my transition to talk to you about national security. So you mentioned Mitt Romney. I know you were a huge fan of the late Senator McCain. What about volume one of the Mueller report? I mean, there was an attack on our country. We might not have recognized it. We might have expected chemical warfare or an attack on the power grids. But there was an attack on the Internet. There was an attack on social media, on the hearts and minds, as we used to call it, right, in the war in Iraq of the American people. And then there was this criminal hack of the DNC and RNC and then the staging of the DNC hacks. What would... McCain, had he seen volume one, say about that kind of what some people liken to a kind of Pearl Harbor or 9-11? I mean, I imagine he would have probably said pretty much what John Bolton said before he joined the administration, which was that this was an act of war by Russia against the United States. And I'm sure that John McCain would have said, just like Mitt Romney said, that he was sickened by Trump's conduct. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what any decent, normal, patriotic American ought to say. I mean, I'm I, I am truly flabbergasted that uh, more Republicans aren't saying that because it just seems so obvious. I mean, this is not a close call. Should you cooperate with a hostile foreign state to subvert American elections and win political office for yourself? Is that a good thing or a bad mm-hmm. thing? This should, it would not be a close call. Yeah. If, you know, if this were, 
you know, if, uh, if, if Joe Biden starts cooperating with China to hack the Trump campaign and to win office, you can bet your bottom dollar that, mm-hmm. you know, Fox News and Trump will be calling Joe Biden a traitor, saying he ought to be locked up, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but when, when Trump does it, somehow it's okay. You know, I just read your piece about Joe Biden, and I want to talk about that. Do you think that Democrats should adopt some of the Newt Gingrich strategies of even throwing around words like traitor or treason? John Brennan used the word treason. In this case, it seems closer to the mark, at least, than when Newt Gingrich used to use it monotonously about just about every Democrat. What do you think in a Biden candidacy, a Harris candidacy, how hard should they be on this guy? I don't know that they necessarily need to invoke the word treason, which Trump is using all the time. I think we need to tone down the rhetoric of politics a little bit and I think there is a danger that if politics becomes too poisonous and it becomes nothing but invective from from both sides, that actually benefits Trump uh, because, you know, uh, name calling is part of his brand identity. It actually works for him in some perverse way, whereas it's not part of the brand identity for for these leading Democrats. Mm-hmm. And it can actually undermine their credibility uh, to engage in that kind of mudslinging. But I mean, I think there's no question that the Democrats need to call out Trump for his abhorrent and indeed illegal conduct mm-hmm. and make that clear, while at the same time, they obviously also need to develop a, a campaign that's not entirely based on, on trashing Trump. They, you know, I think Democrats were actually pretty successful in the 2018 elections by not making it all about Trump, by focusing on health care and other issues mm-hmm. where they have an advantage over the Republicans. So I think it's it's really kind of striking the right balance. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, you got to you got to call out Trump, but you got to also focus on, on on other concerns and not, you know, fall prey to uh, this charge that can resonate among some independents, I think that, oh, you know, you're just focused on Trump and you're not focused on on the people's business. And I think you have to you have to do both. Trump is focused on Trump. It does seem one way or the other that the election is going to be a referendum on Trump. And I guess we've wondered since 2016 whether he should be taken on in some ways on his own terms. He doesn't have to be dismantled with name calling. But, you know, we have a national emergency in the White House. And if in 2004 candidates weren't talking about the war, weren't talking about responses to 9-11, you would think that they had their head in the sand. Yeah, you can't ignore it. It's just a question of how you address it. And I think the most important thing that the Democratic nominee, whoever that is, has to do is to show that he or she is a safe pair of hands on the on the tiller of, of the ship of state because Trump's camp, we already know how tr- Trump is going to run. He's going to claim that the Democrats are turning America into Venezuela. They're socialists. He's also going to attack the Democratic nominee. It's going to be some version of lock her up. It'll now be, you know, lock him up if it's going to be Biden. It's going to be, you know, he's, the the mudslinging uh, will be off the charts. I mean, we saw how frenetic and crazy Trump got before the 2018 midterm election, and he wasn't even on the ballot. So imagine what it's going to be like next year when he's actually on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to have somebody uh, with a a good temperament who can take that and, 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 and handle it with some equanimity. And basically reassure voters that, no, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not the, inc- I'm, I'm not an American Hugo Chavez. I mean, if actually, mm-hmm. if anybody's an American Hugo Chavez, it's probably Trump. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to have somebody who basically disarms 
uh, some of these vile critiques that, that Trump is going to put out there and essentially assures uh, you know, some of these white working class voters in these key Midwestern states uh, that it'll be safe to put a Democrat into the Oval Office because Trump is going to try to scare them out of their wits. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about fear. My friend and frequent guest, Karen Schwartz, has said that you're either a volume one person or a volume two person. That's like the new version of, and I'm talking about the Mueller report, the new version of which house in Harry Potter are you? And for volume one people who are most concerned about the Russian attacks, manufactured outrage is one thing, just saying Trump makes things less safe and kind of rehearsing the Mattis resignation letter. But do you actually feel, as someone who has studied Russia and takes a broad interest in national security, do you feel on a regular basis as though the country is less safe? I mean, do you think there's a cause right now to sound the alarm, as people did at various points during the Cold War, that we're really in danger? I think we are less safe on a variety of levels, not the least of which is that Donald Trump almost seems to be inviting Russian interference in our elections once again Mm -hmm. uh, in order to stay in office. But I think we're unsafe for a variety of other reasons, including the fact that when it comes to soft power, he is practicing unilateral disarmament. He is dismantling this international system that that the greatest generation built after World War II based on security alliances, based on free trade, based on support for human rights and democracy. Donald Trump doesn't believe in any of those things. Mm -hmm. And so he is essentially dismantling uh, basically the core of American power, what's kept us safe and prosperous for more than 70 years. He's launching trade wars with everybody Mm -hmm. uh, and ramping it up apparently with with China later this week. Uh, He is uh, attacking our allies. He is you know, kissing up to dictators like Kim Jong-un. I mean, he actually said, I stand with I stand with him in reference to Kim Jong-un. I mean, imagine if what Republicans would be saying if uh, if uh, President Obama or Secretary Clinton or somebody else said that they stood with one of the most vicious dictators in the world. But that that's who Donald Trump is. And I think what, you know, if you look abroad, uh, uh, public approval for the United States is plummeting. One recent poll actually showed that more people abroad view the United States has a threat now than view China or Russia. I mean, that's mind-boggling to me that that is happening. That's but, people in the West? Um, I think it was it was a Pew Global survey. I think wow. it was a whole bunch of different countries uh, uh, aggregated together. Yeah. And it's, my, it's mind-boggling to me that that is, that is happening now. And that's, yeah. that's, you know, it's not just a popularity poll because we have depended upon our international standing because, uh, you know, a country like China is much larger than we are in population. They're going to very soon be larger economically. They have a very potent military. But the key advantage the United States has over countries like China and Russia is we have allies and they don't. They are surrounded by countries that are fearful of them, that see them as these bullies and and threats to their own self-interest. And those countries naturally align with the United States. And that's our huge advantage that, you know, we're never going to have a military as big as China is much less as big as China and Russia's combined, but we don't need to because we can rely upon their neighbors to work with us mm-hmm. to contain their threats to peace. And and Donald Trump is rapidly frittering that away. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're an ally of the United States, why would you trust the United States in the future? You know, Trump is so erratic, so isolationist, and so protectionist in his instincts. 
And you have to know that even if Trump loses office eventually, and he will, uh, those sentiments that he represents, they're not going away. They're still going to be in the United States, and some future demagogue will conjure those demons into, into being once again. And so mm. if you're an American ally, you just can't count on the United States the way that you once could. And I think this is this is a huge danger where this is frittering away uh, a, a key source of American power that has underpinned the security and prosperity of the world for decades. The Pax Americana is in shambles. And partly, I don't think chemical warfare, germ warfare, is too bad a parallel for what the Russians did, because even elements of this conversation are inflected with the very new apprehension since 2015, 2016, that we are a nation at each other's throats Sometimes on the brink, we say, of, of some kind of civil war being invoked for the first time. We have brown shirtism being encouraged by the president. We're hearing that extreme language that was seeded into our social media bloodstream deliberately by Russians, as outlined in the Mueller report. The extremes of rhetoric, I can practically feel the cortisol poisoning alive in the land. I mean, who talked about white supremacy in this kind of language? Would we have expected a Charlottesville in 2014? You know, I remember during during the campaign, I went to see a movie called Hidden Figures about black women at NASA, mathematicians who hadn't gotten their due. And, it, you know, it's a beautiful movie about revisiting the contributions of black women that had been unsung at NASA. That looked like we haven't yet paid attention to that particular nexus of gender, science and race, and that this was part of an ever more precise pluralism. And you'd think that was another world to hear people talk in violent exterminationist language about blacks and Jews and these conflagrations and mass shootings that are driven by incel misogyny. By I mean, I just had never even heard of some of this stuff. It's, you know, exotic far reaches of extremist hatred that we would have identified as ISIS in the past and is now commonplace here. Right. Now, I mean, my own personal experiences, I mean, I lived in this country for, I don't know what, 45 years, something like that, without ever experiencing overt anti-Semitism. And all of a sudden, starting in 2015, when Donald Trump started running for president, my email inbox, my Twitter account, both started filling up with this vile anti-Semitic filth. You know, like I started getting uh, like Photoshopped images of me in a, in a, in a, in a, oven with, with Donald Trump dressed as an SS stormtrooper, you know, turning on the lever to gas me. I mean, this became, and I wasn't unique. I mean, a lot of Jewish commentators started seeing this, and according to the ADL, there's been a rapid upsurge in anti-Semitic violence in this in this country. And of course, as we saw in Pittsburgh and, and in Poway, some of it has been deadly. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the new America where these white supremacists and the haters out there feel emboldened by what's happening. I mean, bottom line is Putin's intervention in the 2016 election was probably the most effective covert action in history. Amazing. I know. For a very low investment, he has completely turned America upside down. He has pitted Americans against one another. Mm -hmm. He has put this unqualified, unfit, unbalanced demagogue into the Oval Office. He is undermining global confidence in the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's doing exactly what he wants to do. He is spreading chaos and division among his enemies. He is achieving his objectives. And, and you know, Donald Trump to this day still will not consistently admit that there was ever a Russian operation to begin with or that it had any effect on 
on the outcome of the election. Right. And just called Putin right off the Mueller report to say that was a Mueller hoax. One last thing. What do you do in your regular rounds about that level of trolling and sort of id driven attacks, just a level of hyper arousal in political conversation that can quickly subdue our prefrontal cortex, our more evolved way of thinking. And sometimes it just seems hard to hold on even to complex thought when you have, in my case, rape imagery showing up in my inbox or in your case, the gas chambers, which, you know, I know lots of Jewish intellectuals have received that stuff. It's never not a punch to the gut. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's absolutely disgusting. And obviously, these sentiments have been there all along. But what's disturbing is that these extremist hate mongers kind of feel emboldened to come out into the open. And in fact, I think part of it has to do with the fact that Donald Trump openly echoes a lot of what they think. And to have, you know, ratification from the president of the United States is a powerful inducement uh, to uh, you know, to to uh, act upon your beliefs. And I mean, you saw this and, and the, you know, this is not going to end well. I mean, you saw this incidence of uh, of a Trump supporter in Florida who is who is sending mail bombs to Trump opponents and and mm-hmm. and critics and the media and the Democratic Party. I mean, we have to be worried about that kind of thing now because Trump's language is so incendiary attacking, you know, Democrats as traitors, calling the press the enemy of the people. No American president mm-hmm. has ever talked like this. I mean, this is the way that dictators talk. And even though Trump is not actually a dictator, in many ways, he is acting like one. And, you know, that's just it's just very dangerous, because if you think about what's going to happen in 2020, mm-hmm. I mean, what if there's a close election? What if Trump narrowly loses? Is he going to recognize the legitimacy of that election? Mm-hmm. Or is he going to claim that, you know, he's been robbed by millions of illegal aliens voting and uh, it's a coup d'etat mm-hmm. and and so forth and so on? I mean, he's not going to be able to declare himself president for life. But you kind of have to wonder, there's a lot of these individuals out there who are already pretty unbalanced, and how are they going to behave uh, if, if Donald Trump, uh, you know, incites them uh, to even greater violence? I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a scary scenario that we shouldn't have to think about, that, but we have to think about. I think that's right. I want to commend to listeners your piece in The Washington Post about Joe Biden and especially how Joe Biden has decided to read Donald Trump as an aberration, he says, to Republican ideals. I think he's really shoring up the center there. Who are you for in 2020? Have you chosen? I mean, I don't have a particular candidate. I'm, I'm for whoever can win, basically. And, and I would hope that it would be somebody who would be relatively moderate and, and centrist, of whom there are a number of those candidates in, in the Democratic race. Um, I think it would be a big mistake for the Democratic Party to kind of do what the Republican Party has done in reverse, with the Republican Party going to the far right. Mm-hmm. Uh, some Democrats think we should just they, they, they should go to the far left. I mm-hmm. think that would be a mistake. I think there is a once-in-a-generation opportunity in 2020 for Democrats to reclaim the center, to win over people like me who are disaffected Republicans, moderates, independents, mm-hmm. uh, who don't like what Trump has done to the Republican Party but have some doubts about the the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren program, mm. I think there is a lot of room between, you know, Bernie Sanders on the one hand and Donald Trump on the other. There's a lot of middle ground there that Democrats can capture. And I think they have a historic opportunity to once again make the Democratic Party the majority party of the United States. But I think to seize that opportunity, they really have to nominate somebody who's going to be pretty moderate, pretty centrist, who can win over voters 
who in some cases voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And that was almost 10% of Obama voters mm-hmm. voted for Trump. I mean, that is a constituency that we that the Democratic nominee absolutely has to win over in order to defeat Trump in 2020. Max Boot, he's a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of the new book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Thread a little bit on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And by the way, feel free to give up Twitter also, as my esteemed colleague Yasha Monk advises. But why stop there? Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today's your day. Remember, all Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That is Zlotty's a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by the hip Melissa Kaplan with help from the peerless Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.